If you're a fan of Ivy League education, this is definitely not the episode for you. Today on the FutureX podcast, how do we pivot to a modern higher education model? And yes, we will be dealing with the nuts and bolts of how to do it, the options, but also the obstacles. And we will be talking about elitism, access and diversity, as well as how to better synergize with the K through 12 system. This is the kind of discussion we always enjoy at the Future X podcast. I'm Hector H. Lopez, and today we're joined by Matt Alex, Christine Lucer, Saki Milton, Kiel Dumsch, and higher ed changemaker, Dr. Mark Lombardi of Maryville University. Let's go to the discussion. Christine, do you want, you had a follow-up. Do you want to go? I would love to jump in here. So I work at Minerva and we have a really systematic approach to the way we run classes. And when I went there, I was really scared about giving up my personal agency in my teaching. But over time, I realized that what I gave up was individual control in exchange for organizational transformation. You have figured out a way to get faculty excited about working for the school rather than working for themselves. And for me, this means that small teaching colleges actually have an intense competitive advantage here because large research institutions are oriented towards individual contributors. That's how that system is set up. And to me, this feels optimistic. So I'm wondering if you think this collective competitive advantage by getting people to work for an institution as a group really puts the power in the hands of small liberal arts colleges and flips the script on what kind of models will win out for higher ed in the future. Christine, I think you put your finger on on it. I think, and by the way, I'm not, this isn't just me talking. I've had some of the higher highest level executives in Apple and Salesforce and other companies tell me the same thing, which is, yeah, there's always going to be an Ivy League and yeah, there's going to be, you know, large state uh, research one inf- institutions, if for no other reason they they need a place to play football, <laughs> but 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 the reality is that this the 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 revolution in higher ed is going to be led by the Maryvilles and the Minervas and un- other universities. Why? Simply, we have a fluidity uh, and a mobility of action, and we're able to take action, and we're able to uh, build this model f- more effectively. In other words, we're not dealing with the huge silos. The uh, high-up executives, Apple, Salesforce, they always tell me the same thing. We tried to work closely with Stanford. We tried to work with Princeton. We tried to, and on and on and on. And we just got absolutely tired of it. The bureaucracy was too much. Uh, the, uh, the, the stasis and the resistance to change, uh, you know, we'd much rather work with institutions that can move and um, quickly and, and do these things. And also can really, as you pointed out, Christine, can really change the culture from within. And uh, so, I, you know, absolutely, I think, I think there are a lot of schools that if, they're, if they have the courage to walk through this door, can really be a, a partner with other schools like ourselves and, uh, and your school and others to really remake higher ed. So we have uh, Saki Milton, who everyone knows on Clubhouse. And so she jumped on the stage. Saki, do you want to ask uh, Dr. Lombardi a question around K-12? Thank you, Dr. Lombardi, for your time. Um, my question is this, um, how can uh, universities apply pressure while simultaneously partnering with K-12 school districts to do exactly what you're talking about for higher ed? 
otherwise, I think that we're going to continue to have the disconnect between both entities and the gap will continue to only widen. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And again, thank you. Oh, it's a great question. And and first of all, I, you know, every time I think my job stuff, I think about being a superintendent in a public school system in Missouri or anywhere else. And I realize that there are a lot tougher jobs than mine. Um, my only answer to you is really what we're doing, which is we're not attacking that problem through the bureaucracy. We're basically attacking it uh, with the students. So we've, and we've developed through our Center for Access and Achievement, we've developed several programs for like middle school students, for example, and younger around everything from coding to, uh, to cybersecurity to a variety of different, to, uh, but most importantly rooted in our life coaching model, which is sophisticated learning diagnostics, helping young people understand, you know, why they why they think the way they do, why they're comfortable doing things certain ways and not others, and then empowering them about what they can be, and that to utilize the digital tools to do it. And uh, and fortunately, we've had corporate partners like Apple and others that that are willing to put those tools in their hands. It it really has to come with the student. You know, you start working through the bureaucracy of school districts. What ends up happening is you'll find a, a really innovative, amazing principal. We have several in our area. And then you'll find a bunch of other principals that are great people, but they they don't want to rock the boat. And so so what we've been we've been working with community organizations like Boys Club, Girls Club, like Girls Inc., like uh, a number of those and, and Jackie Joyner Kersey uh, group here in East uh, school here in East St. Louis. We've been working with those groups to really go in, for lack of a better term, with the student at the ground level and bypass the bureaucracy. You, you, you mentioned something at your opening that I would like to go back to, the 13-year-old young lady that is currently going through the K-12 through system and maybe some of the obstacles that this 13-year-old faces uh, currently. We can add perhaps a few qualifiers to the 13-year-old, and I'd like to kind of get your, your take on it. Let's say that we're dealing with a 13-year-old young lady from an underserved community that has never really heard of Maryville from the perspective of the institution, what it's doing in terms of the disruptive educational tracks it's exploring. How do you foresee a student like this being able to not only get in touch with Maryville, but see this as a viable option for her, given the access issues that we face. I mean, there is an active, very, very uh, big debate, uh, to couch it lightly, on the value proposition of higher education. I'd be very interested on your take on that. Well, I think that's a great question, but I, and I also would, would qualify it in this way. The, the, the digital transformation, if you will, of multiple and integrated platforms where not just 12-year-olds, but 18-year-olds, 45-year-olds, 60-year-olds can access that content that a provider, in this case, Maryville, would provide. Um, it, you have to conceptualize it as a open platform. So if you're, and, and the fact that most people are going to access content that is, that is not degree-seeking, but is really about skill development or information or what have you. So I would expect, I, I, would, I would envision a way that that young, young girl could access Maryville through 
like any other app, like through YouTube or anything else, and and delve into things that she's interested in and, and explore things she's interested in, not at any cost to her, but simply as she's thinking about what she wants to do and where she wants to be. And then the 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 actual educational delivery, whether it's in person, on, uh, uh, online, or a mixture of uh, integrated platforms, happens when she's ready. And, and it happens once she's in that ecosystem, she can take advantage of it on a regular basis. I, I say the subscription Netflix model, and the reason I say that is this. Millions of people have Netflix or Amazon Prime and these things, and millions of people have no idea what they really cost every month, and they don't really care. And the reason they don't care is because they don't want to leave it. It's too good. So they just assume that whatever the cost is, if it's $19.99, that it's worth it. And, and I'm not suggesting that higher ed is going to be a $19.99 a month proposition. What I am suggesting is there's a price point for everybody where the, your access to what a provider can provide, in this case, a university, is far is so worth it to you that you really aren't worried about the cost of it because you're not you don't want to give it up just like you know there 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 are a lot of people who are struggling financially and they're not going to give up their cell phone and they're not going to give up other things and the, and those are those are decisions people make in an economy across the board and it's based on the value proposition of of what they have i think higher ed is moving to that now i'm not saying it's going to be there tomorrow but let's face it, everybody in this call knows the tuition fee model of higher ed is, is impossible to sustain. You know, at Maryville, we froze tuition for five straight years, and last year we lowered it 5%, and we're going to continue to lower tuition until we've got it down 20 or 25%. But, and by the time we do that, I suspect we'll be ready to move to a modified kind of model. I can't predict that exactly, but because you can't keep charging people what you're charging them. You can't keep uh, it, people incurring debt at the volume they're incurring it. And look, and what we all know, that student, be she African-American, Hispanic-American, from an underserved, underrepresented community, assuming that she's in some socioeconomic challenges, then high, higher ed, she's closed out of it. And, and, uh, and, and that's why higher ed inherently is elitist. And anything that's inherently elitist is also inherently sexist and racist. And that's why the, the most important, fa not the most important, one of the key factors in dealing with DEI issues in higher ed is to, is to change the cost structure, quite frankly. That's not the only thing, but that's a, that's a very important thing. Definitely. I, I think you'll find that a lot of people agree with, with that discussion. So, so then that leads to a, to, to a, a follow-up, uh, which would be how, how do you foresee in this race to the subscription model or to the new model, because I know that there are some universities trying other non-subscription but similar-esque uh, ways of, of doing things, then how does the brand recognition influence this model? The whole concept of the Harvards and the Princetons and the Yales considering going into this and kind of shedding their, their, their very pricey uh, cost of education and, and them going into the online subscription model. Does, does that influence your, you know, perception of how Maryville should act, how this could be an, a, a, a conversation around an equalization effect versus a continuing of the old model, which is 
as we all know, you know, very elite, you know, you're either part of this group that is very Ivy League-esque, Ivy League-esque or you're part of this group, which is for your non-Ivy League, or you're part of the two-year. There's a lot of that in the current system. But as we race to this subscription, do you foresee brand becoming an issue in terms of getting at the same, you know, 13-year-old young lady, whether she'd be black or Hispanic? It, it, how, do you, how, how do you deal with that or how do you foresee that, President Lombardi? Well, you're tapping into something that that is um, probably at the core of uh, why I'm why I've been disrupting higher ed the way I have. Uh, I grew up in the shadow of the Ivy League, and uh, and 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 what what always struck me, and I'm I'm sorry to those of you that went to the Ivy League, is that uh, people that are there or attended there seem to think that they they were smarter than everyone else. And I see absolutely no empirical evidence of that. Uh, the only advantage of going to Harvard or Yale is that your roommate may end up being a Supreme Court justice and you may need a parking ticket fix someday. And I know I'm being very flippant, but the, the, the reputation of universities has been built up literally over hundreds of years. And to break it down, break down those brands or change the perception of those brands it's going to take a while. Will there always be an Ivy League? Sure. Will they get into a subscription model of education? Probably not. I, my guess is that they would be thrown out of the, 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 the fancy exclusive clubs in Boston and New Jersey and elsewhere if they ever talked about such a thing. And I know I'm, I'm being sarcastic. My, uh, my, my love for the Ivy League is coming out. But, but let, me, let me explain what I mean in, in, in real sense. All the schools that we talk about brand reputation, exclusivity in all these rankings is, and selectivity is one of the most uh, um, uh, ridiculous and embarrassing statistics to measure the strength of a school. Think about it. Oh, you know, I've heard this for years. Oh, we had 20,000 applications. We only let in 1,000. Aren't we wonderful? And that, that has nothing to do with the quality of education. It has nothing to do with any of that. And I'll even go further. Anybody on this call, anybody within the sound of my voice or any other voice, if you think that you can put your hand on the forehead of a 17-year-old girl, African-American, Hispanic, white, whatever, and predict how successful they're going to be in life at 17 years old based on what? A standardized test and GPA in high school? If you're that, if you can do that, well, I, please uh, pick out some Powerball numbers for me and send them to me because I'd really like to win the Powerball. I mean, it's absolutely arrogant presumption and ridiculousness to think that we can pick winners and losers in life's race when, when young people are 16 and 17. Do I think that democratization of education is racing? Yes. And what I think will end up happening is that that will wipe out a lot of the, uh, what I would call the stratification of brand. Okay, some brands are going to linger strong for a long time, the Ivy League, the Stanford's, whatever. But but the the notion of excellence in education will not be defined by uh, elitism or exclusivity in the future. It'll be defined by what your students do after they get out. Do CEOs want to hire them? Have they got great skills? Are they leaders in their, are they innovators? When uh, I can, we've got a 98% career placement rate, had it for several years. CEOs tell me all the time, I'll drive a bus up to graduation and take your students. That's the only measure I'm interested in, not how many people we don't let in. 
I have Keel, who is really passionate. He's, he's really um, one of the folks in Clubhouse that are really talking about rethinking higher ed in terms of, of the degree system. Keel, do you want to go really quick? I wanted to follow up really quick on what Mark said about this uh, higher ed slowly shedding that exclusivity obsession and going for both uh, just a, a learning models based on learning and then more merit without regards to where someone went to college. My, my uh, issue is that I, I think we need that to be immediate. I'd hate to see a slow sort of acceptance of a different system, especially when there's this admissions craziness like the Varsity Blues scandal that's getting landed in jail. People landed in jail. Yeah, sure. I, yeah, I, I agree it needs to happen and it needs to happen quickly. Uh, I don't think, uh, and I'm one of the few times I'll sound pessimistic, I, I don't think it will happen quickly, and here's why. Uh, reputation uh, is, a, is a funny thing because it's a, it has a generational tie to it, okay? So, so you've got a generation of people my age, right, who grew up in an era where it was drilled into us that, uh, you know, if you can't get into Harvard, go to go to Brown. If you can't get into Brown, go to this, if you, like, a, like a ladder, like a pecking order. And, and usually those attitudes that are formed at that time are very difficult to change. I mean, I, um, I'll, I'll even have alums say to me things like, wow, I love what Maryville's doing. It's so exciting. It's so great. And, and they'll say very naively, they'll say, do you think Maryville could ever, you know, be, be, be selective like Harvard or Yale? And, and what they're saying to me is, I think of universities based on reputation and I don't, I don't, I don't let them have it, but I gently let them know that our object is not to exclude people, but to include, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sanguine about the prospect of that aspect of higher ed. I think it's going to linger for a while. Um, and, and, and I'll tell you why, I'll tell you another reason why, uh, you, you touched on it with the varsity blue scandal. Because parents have a lot of their ego tied up in where their kid goes to school. And, and they like to go down to the club or whatever the hell it is and brag, oh, my kid get into this and into that. And that's another factor that's at work there that's really, I see it all the time. And it really, um, as you might imagine, it, it irks me, shall we say. Yeah, I think that's been a problem for a long time, going back to the 19th century, that Elite college attendance is getting used as a status marker. But anyway, my, my follow-up question is sort of, sort of along, along the lines, if that, that exclusivity goes away, uh, as more of education moves online, how concerned are you about the elite colleges like Harvard shedding that exclusivity obsession and expanding their enrollments? I'm seeing this with Harvard where they're letting more people take their online degrees. I think that might hurt the lesser-known colleges like yours especially when the job credentialing turns away from these full degrees and towards these shorter certificates and other alternatives. Because when you're taking away that specific seat time and specific place, then I, I, the, then you could have the elites start to gobble up more enrollments. Are you worried about that? No, not really. And I'll tell you why. And it goes back to Dr. Given's uh, point. The, the, those elite colleges do not have faculty who are committed to teaching, not in the way that that universities like Maryville, we, we call ourselves a teaching one institution as opposed to a research one institution. The other thing that many of those schools, maybe they'll figure it out, they haven't figured out yet, is 
what what we have along with a great faculty de, the, with the professional development I talked about, we have a team of 16 learning designers, full-time learning design experts who work with the faculty in designing both on-ground and online uh, learning experiences that are robust and powerful. So yeah, uh, and again, I'm being, I apologize if I'm too sarcastic. I grew up in the East Coast. It, 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 it's a genetic thing. Uh, but, but, you know, you, online education is not taking the uh, the highly credentialed faculty member at Harvard and putting a camera on him or her and the calling it online. That's not online education. That's not what we do. That's not what any institution that provides robust online. So am I worried? Not particularly, because be, between you and me, I think they're going to they're not going to be able to do it as effectively as us and others. And part of it is because they're not going to be able to get out of the way of their own egos. Yeah, but what Hector and I were getting at is that brand, though. This is my, I, I agree completely. You're doing wonderful, innovative stuff. But right now, people are getting the amount of schooling they need to get for jobs. And the, there's the power of a particular school's brand and the credential. That, so that's my, my well, question, the challenge. Well, it is that the the brand part is a challenge, and and it's a challenge uh, in terms of getting through. Uh, it's like any other marketing challenge, right? It's getting through all the noise and ground clutter, and getting the message out there. And I, the 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 bad news or the tough news is it's a competitive environment. But the good news is it's a competitive environment, and what that means is that over time the consumer, the customer here, is going to separate the wheat from the chaff and be able to uh, see and, and, and evaluate and make good sound decisions in that process. I'm not worried about Harvard getting, uh, like uh, Southern New Hampshire, getting 150,000 uh, students uh, online at Harvard, uh, because I think what students will find if they enter an ecosystem that doesn't know what they're doing in the online space, that that ecosystem just doesn't meet their needs. And, and I think what's happening with this generation and, and maybe the, the, the last generation as well is when it comes to lifelong education, I think they're becoming, they're very utilitarian in that they want skill development, workforce training, they want experiences, micro-credentials. More and more, they're driving into these spaces. And, and I think in those spaces, Maryville or others are, are going to be just as competitive, if not more so. And I think the brand uh, will um, rise to the top. I, I, think, I think our brand certainly is, and, and, and other brands will as well. But, I, you know, it's a, it's a very, it's a good question. It's a very, it's, it's an important consideration for sure. Dr. Mark Lombardi has served as president of Maryville University since 2007. In that time, Maryville has achieved unprecedented growth and earned national distinction for leading a digital revolution in higher education. Dr. Lombardi is the 10th president named since the institution's founding in 1872. He's also the author and co-author of multiple books, the most recent being Pivot, a vision for the new university published in 2019. This episode was recorded live on Clubhouse. Check us out at the FutureX Tribe. It was produced by the FutureX Tribe, Beyond Academics, and the Next Global Organization. Executive Director, 
and Chief Moderator, Matt Alex. Edited by B-Next Media. I'm Hector H. Lopez. We'll see you next time as we continue our discussions with the higher ed changemakers on the FutureX podcast. <laughs>